You can hear already this is kind of freighted with some culturally sensitive things. Trust me, this is really not for us this morning about race or politics. Okay? That's the milieu, but that's really not what it's about. It's really about um, the church and our need to safeguard her. So listen, listen through that lens if you would with me this morning. Um, in the survey, surveys that he was looking at, this historian, he said already... 30% of Southern Baptists seldom or never attend church. 30% of Southern Baptists seldom or never attend church. He goes on in his analysis of these surveys that he's looking at, and he says 45% of white Southerners self-report in attending church no more than once a year. He says if lapsed evangelical Protestant were a denomination, it would be by far the largest religious body in the South. And he says these, these folks who, um, it's 45% of white Southerners who attend church no more than once a year still identify as Protestant Christians. And based on other surveys, they probably still call themselves evangelicals. But there are some distinct differences. 68% of these folk who only attend church once a year or less, 68% said premarital sex between a man and a woman was not wrong at all. But by contrast, only 21%, a third of white Protestant Southerners who attended church weekly or more thought that heterosexual premarital sex was not wrong at all. And then he sums up his research this way with some of the distinctions, and uh, this is kind of a powerful little quote. I want it to just sit on us for a minute. He says, when people leave church, they retain a kind of moralism, but lose their sense of self-sacrifice and trust in others. They keep their Bible, their gun, their pro-life pin, and their MAGA hat, but also pick up a condom and a marijuana joint and lose whatever willingness they had to care for other people in community. And again, hear me, my point is really not about race and politics. Okay? It's not. It's about the need to safeguard the church from the philosophies of men that are eager to fill the gaps when the church lets down her guard and people simply fall away. It is very precarious to try to be a Christian apart from the church gathered. Okay? It is a very precarious thing to try to be a Christian apart from the church gathered. When faith falters, other allegiances are eager to fill the gap. And you hear their voices, and so do your friends, every day, every day. Now, the Apostle Paul had a somewhat similar concern that was driving him to write the letter of Colossians that we are studying together now. The Colossian church, to whom Paul's writing, was apparently a good church, right? If you lived in Colossae, you'd want to attend this church, right? 
Listen to the way Paul has described it and does describe it in the letter. In the beginning of the letter, he says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. And then listen to how he ends our passage today. I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So Paul's writing to a healthy church, a good one. Um, but it is one that's being pressed by what he's going to call in the next chapter philosophy and human tradition. Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. One writer said the Colossian Christians have started well. They're continuing well. It's the future for which Paul is concerned. As one writer put it, the epistle of Colossians is a vaccination against heresy, not an antibiotic for those already afflicted. And so as your pastor, I'm mindful of our culture's philosophy and traditions that are eager to find their way into the church and lead you out of it as they supplant Christ as the center. And in our passage today, Paul's going to weave together a bunch of safeguards for the church, and I'm going to press them into three buckets for us. Um, but as we see these safeguards that Paul is deploying for the church in his day, I'd like you to think about which one you personally need to be safe in your faith, and which one God might have you wield to help safeguard this good church in our day. So if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Colossians in the New Testament, the first chapter, the 24th verse, that's where we'll start, and I'd like to pray for us as we do. So Lord, help us. We are, we are the ship in the sea. We are made for the sea. Oh, but God, help us if the sea gets into the ship. And uh, today, um, safeguard us, God, safeguard us from things that would take the place of Christ in our devotion, in our hope, in our trust, in our identity. Um, the traditions of men, the philosophies of the age. Help us, God. Strengthen us now, your people. Here at Northwake, we pray. Amen. All right, the first safeguard is in the very first verse of our passage, verse 24 of chapter 1. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And it's always nice when you're studying a passage that Paul starts with stuff that's absolutely puzzling, right? <laughs> you're like, oh, this is going to be a good week. I can hardly wait for what Paul's going to confuse me about. So he starts, he's saying, yeah, I'm pretty pumped about my suffering, and I'm, and I'm making up for what Jesus lacked. <laughs> and you're like... Great, that's really, really helpful, Paul. Let's take those puzzles one at a time. Okay, first of all, there is, there is a kind of suffering that increases joy, as odd as that sounds. There is a kind of suffering that increases joy. Jesus taught about it in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 10, or Matthew 5, rather. 
Verse 10, blessed, Jesus says, are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peter would add his voice to this chorus. He'd say in chapter 4 of his first letter, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So clearly, clearly, the New Testament, and these are just a sampling, repeatedly teaches there is a kind of suffering that increases your joy. And one writer described it this way. He said, to suffer for Christ's sake is to endure hardship because of one's loyalty to him or with a view to the advancement of his kingdom or to demonstrate his incomparable worth, and I would add, or, or to love his people. See, in that kind of suffering that is for Christ, or as Paul says, for those Christ loves, there is a sense of the pleasure of God on your life that brings joy. I bet you felt it. I bet, you've, I bet you sensed this. When you took money that you had set aside for something else and you gave it away, when you sat at hospital with a friend or watched their kids so that they could be there at the hospital with those they love, when you spoke up for Christ when others did the exact opposite, in these small ways and many, many more, where hardship and suffering have come to you in the guise of sacrifice, you found joy there, right? You know what I'm talking about? Paul, he's writing from prison and he feels this joy. His imprisonment is for the good of the church then and now. And so Paul at night when he lays his head down in that dark damp cell at night and he, he feels joy because of this truth. So to sacrifice for the people in this room, your church family, to suffer for them, maybe in just some small way of time, resources, convenience, it's worth it. It's, it's the path of no regrets. There's greater joy in it. Paul is modeling this for us. So there is a kind of suffering that leads to greater joy. Um, but there's a second puzzle in the verse, and it's the big one, right? He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church. So Paul says, by his suffering, he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for their sake. Um, maybe we should start with what Paul is clearly not saying here. And Pastor Sam Storms helps us be clear about what Paul does not mean. He says, first, let's be clear what this text does not mean. Paul is not saying that the redemptive sufferings of Jesus on the cross are deficient or incomplete or need to be supplemented by something that Paul or any of us might supply. Okay? 
And perhaps no New Testament writer is clearer, clearer about the finished and sufficient work of Jesus on the cross than the writer of the book of Hebrews who says, Jesus has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So again, let's be clear There's nothing lacking in Jesus' sacrificial suffering on the cross that Paul is somehow making up. There are a number of better explanations of this difficult passage than that. Uh, I found six. (laughs) Six different ways to understand this passage. They're all better than that, all right? But uh, here's one that makes uh, good sense to me, and I feel like it's pretty straightforward. And it takes a clue from similar language that Paul uses elsewhere, not about Jesus, but about one of his co-workers named Epaphroditus. In Philippians, he writes about this guy, Epaphroditus, and he says, Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So some of the same language there, right? He's filling up or completing what is lacking. Now, Epaphroditus had evidently brought a gift from the church to Philippi in jail on their behalf. And I'll just quote Pastor John Piper as he kind of connects the dots for us here. He says, the Philippian church loved the apostle Paul, but their love was distant and unseen. So Epaphroditus became the present, visible, flesh and blood embodiment of their love and service to Paul. Epaphroditus completes He fills up what was lacking, namely a personal flesh and blood presentation to Paul of their loving sacrifice. In the same way, he says, Paul's sufferings for the church are a personal, present, living flesh and blood embodiment of Christ's love and service to the Colossian believers. Paul drew attention to himself and his sufferings because his sufferings were not merely his, they're actually the sufferings of Christ, the love of Christ in Paul. And Paul's affections for the church were the very affections of Christ through Paul for the Colossians. So what he's making up is not, as one writer said, propitiation, the payment for sin, it's presentation. And so in person, in the flesh, Paul is making up for the fact that Jesus is not present He's present in Paul, and so he makes up that lack. Now, this understanding brings a special challenge for those of us who lead the church and those amongst you who hope to lead the church one day. So it becomes clear here, it will cost you to serve the church in leadership, right? You will and must suffer for the church that you serve. You must. It is the way of Christ. Count on it. But there, in the wounding and the sacrifice, you get to put the love of Christ on display to his people, his own loving afflictions for them, as it were. And there is your joy. There is your joy. And this is an indispensable part of pastoral ministry. There's a teacher and author named Paul Borthwick 
And he visited one of his friends who teaches in Beijing, China, and he had attended a church there where four young men who were new believers thanks to his friend's ministry. The service was in Mandarin, so Paul understood nothing, but he did think the pastor, a very senior man, seemed a little boring. He was soft-spoken, a little stooped over, and preached without any expressions of excitement or emotion. Probably wearing a sweater vest. <laughs> At lunch, after the service, Paul asked the four young Christians, is your pastor a good preacher? And they exclaimed, oh yes, he is a great preacher. And then they said, he spent many years in prison for Jesus Christ. Their measurement of the sermon and the pastor's ministry had nothing to do with oratory ability and everything to do with a life faithfully lived in the face of suffering. Leaders who suffer for the church safeguard the church from false teachers. First safeguard Paul displays here for the church today. He goes on and there's a second one um, that's all over this. And that second safeguard is sound, faithful, Christ-exalting teaching of the scriptures. Uh, let's look at this as it's all over this little section in verse 24 I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me um, for you to make the word of God fully known so this is one of those long tangly sentences Paul's known for and that makes him hard to understand at points um, but at the center of this one, it seems that God has appointed him to serve the church by making the word of God fully known. Um, and in the sense of extent, that's something we really value here at North Wake. Uh, that's why the elders have us at the core of our teaching on Sunday morning, teach books of the Bible like this. And when we do teach on topics, we often anchor it in a single or primary text from a book of the Bible because we want to teach the Bible in its fullness, not just Pastor Larry's favorite verses, right? So we teach it all. Um, at the heart of that teaching is something that Paul refers to as a mystery. The Word of God, fully known, contains a mystery, he says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So when Paul writes about a mystery, it's not a secret code that's supposed to be cracked or decoded. Um, rather, it is something that God had not yet revealed, uh, not until now, Paul is saying. And the mystery Paul's writing about here is the revelation that in Christ, the Gentiles, which is just a way of saying the nations or the non-Jewish people of the world, are full citizens in the kingdom of God. It's bigger than God's chosen people of the Old Testament. It's, it's for the nations. And this was crucial for the Colossians, if you remember, because they were mostly Gentiles, right? And it seems that they were being pressed to keep Jewish laws in a way that was harmful to them, that, that could have been that they merited inclusion because of that. And we'll see more of that in chapter 2. 
And this, so this is really good news for them. This mystery revealed, and it's good news for us too, those of us who are not Jewish. The mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles in Christ is our great hope too. Paul Paul elsewhere will write about Jesus dwelling in our hearts through faith. And author Mark Maynell says, Christ has taken up residence in us. That's right, the cosmic Lord, the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn from among the dead, the one who died for you and me is present within you, Christian, as you read these words. Paul goes on and he says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So central to Paul's teaching is Christ, and he warns and wisely instructs with maturity as his goal. And this emphasis on teaching and wisdom and knowledge pops up again in this passage in just a verse or two. If you skip into chapter two, verse two, we read Paul saying, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So this teaching of wisdom and knowledge centers on Christ for Paul. He's the center, the recurring theme, the overarching focus is knowing Christ. That's maturity, knowing Christ. This is a safeguard from the false teachers for whom Christ was not central. He was not sufficient. Not the exalted divine creator we heard about from Paul in last week's passage. Um, Noah's going to teach this passage next week that says this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Professor Doug Moo says, Paul is again piling up words in order to hammer home the truth that Christ and Christ alone is the source of every conceivable bit of spiritual knowledge um, worth having. So, So this is a good challenge for everyone who teaches at North Wake, whether it's children or adults, to keep the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing is Christ, right? Another writer put it this way, there's nothing you could ever hope to know about God, his will and his ways that you won't find in Jesus and you'll only find it in Jesus. He alone is the treasury of divine wealth and wisdom. This is what Paul prayed that the Colossians would experience. But this exhortation that Paul is kind of giving here to warn and teach about Jesus is not just for teachers and preachers. Paul's going to use the exact same language over in chapter 3 of his letter when he writes this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Same words there as our passage. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him and you see how central Christ is to be in the life and the speech of Christians Paul calls all of us here to admonish and to encourage and teach one another um, towards maturity in Christ 
for every Christian. This is for every Christian is supposed to do this, not just the teachers who are up front here. And to pull it off, he says, the word of Christ must dwell in you richly. You must be in the word meaningfully and often would be a good way to think about that. A Sunday sermon is not enough for you to be able to do this. These rich daily times in the word are so you can teach one another and admonish and warn one another. I wonder how many of those Southern Christians who stopped attending church would still be engaged in the safety of the life of the church if a friend who was dwelling richly in the word of Christ had taken them to coffee and warned them about the dangers of trying to follow Christ out of the church. See, this every member, Christ-exalting, teaching and warning ministry helps safeguard the church. I wonder, before we run to the next one, are you doing that with anyone? Teaching and encouraging, warning them in their faith in Christ? It safeguards the church when you do. So there's a, a third and last safeguard, and that's the hard work, especially the hard work of prayer. And Paul talks about it starting in verse 28. He says, him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So three times in that handful of verses, Paul says, I struggle for you. I toil for you. I struggle for you to present you mature in Christ. So the disciple-making work that Paul is talking about is really hard work, he says. And again, he says, I've never seen you all face to face. We've never met. So how do you make mature disciples out of someone you've never even met? And in Paul's case, of course, writing this letter from prison as an extension of his teaching ministry of proclaiming Christ will be a big part of that. But surely I think prayer would also be a part, right? How do you help someone you aren't in contact with? Like Paul had no TikTok to communicate his theology, right? I'm not sure he, TikTok would have been his favorite medium to communicate Pauline theology. But he did, you know, use all means to save some, so who knows? Paul on TikTok, that, that's a thought. Um, but back to prayer, Paul said he labored for them, he struggled for them, but he also says in verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I like the way Professor Doug Moo put it. He says, Paul can brag that I worked harder than them all in 1 Corinthians, but at the same time that he accomplishes, what he accomplishes in ministry is always and only through him who gives me strength, Paul says in Philippians. So Paul labors hard, he struggles for their maturity, but he does it in dependence upon God's power and energy. And to me, that sounds like prayer, right? We struggle in prayer for the people that we care about, but we Prayer itself is an expression of dependence on God. It's asking God to work. 
Again, Paul is praying faithfully for a church he has never met, and this is a critical safeguard for the church there in Colossae. People praying for her. So what does this mean for us? It means that when we pray for the church in Ukraine, I hope you are. Ukraine has a thriving evangelical church that is now suffering greatly under the Russian invasion. Or when we pray for the church in Afghanistan, it's the number one uh, country in terms of persecution in the world according to uh, Open Doors this year. I read this this week. It is impossible to live openly as a Christian in Afghanistan. Leaving Islam is considered shameful, and Christian converts face dire consequences if their new faith is discovered. Either they have to flee the country, or they will be killed. This was true before um, the, the turnover in Afghanistan, and it's the first time Afghanistan has been number one on the world watch list. The situation has become even more dangerous for believers this year. When you pray for the church there, I hope you will, it matters, even though you've never met them. It safeguards them from denying Christ under the most extreme persecution on earth. So how do you do that? How do you pray faithfully for the church there, in places like Ukraine, in places like Afghanistan, places like India, where where David was? Or, or is, um, how do you do that? How do you be faithful? How do you struggle faithfully in prayer? Um, let me share a simple way to do it. Um, it involves a piece of paper. Okay. This is an ordinary piece of paper taken from our copier in the office. You take this piece of paper, you fold it once. Do you need to write this down? You fold it once and you fold it again. What you have now are eight columns on which to write prayer requests. One for every day of the week, Monday through Sunday. And that's seven columns. The eighth one is daily. Those are things you're going to pray for, not once a week, but every day. Things, things that really matter to you, people you love, like your family and your pastor, right? <laughs> every day you pray for, for those, those kind of things. So this is so simple, but it helps you be faithful. You see somebody at Northwick, you talk to Carter. Carter tells you, hey, could you pray for me about this? You say, yeah, you betcha, and you walk out of here, and you never pray for Carter. But if you write it down, you pull this out. On Tuesday, you pray for Carter. Now, I've upgraded. My wife still uses this. Uh, she's a paper person. I've gone digital, uh, so I use this app called PrayerMate. It's really good. It's really free. Um, you can download it. And it will help you do this. And you can say, I want to pray for this person every day. I want to pray for this person once a week. I want to pray for this person once a month. Um, The Bible does not say, thou shalt have a prayer list. But it does say, pray faithfully. And this helps. I I don't know anyone that having a prayer list has not helped them pray more faithfully. You probably should have one. Somehow, some way. And these are two very simple ways, simple resources. It's a safeguard for the church when people struggle faithfully in prayer. It's hard to know what to pray for a church, though. What do you pray for a church in Ukraine or Afghanistan or even North Wake? Well, you pray the next verse. 
Let's look again at the start of chapter 2. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So Paul is struggling in prayer for churches he's never visited, and he is praying, one, for their encouragement, and secondly, that they'd be knit together in love. Great things to pray for the church here and there. That, that we would be encouraging one another and we'd be knit together in love. And those two things are often intertwined. To be loved is to be encouraged most often. So to pray that this would be a place of great encouragement and great love. There's a lady named Sister Helen Morosia. She taught in a parochial school back in the 1960s, early 70s. And she writes about a student named Mark. She says, uh, in an, in the, and parochial schools were rough back in the day, so they were pretty strict. So these are not teachers. These are not methods that you should use now, this initial one. She said, in an earlier grade, I'd taped Mark's mouth shut for talking too much in class. Not recommended, right? No, no, our principal says not to be. <laughs> but now he was one of my students in junior high math. His class had worked hard all week, and by Friday, the students were getting cranky. So for a break, I asked them to write the nicest thing they could about each student and hand it in. That you can still do. I compiled the results for each student, and on Monday, gave out the lists. Several years later, she says Mark was killed in Vietnam. After the funeral, most of his former classmates gathered with Mark's parents and me for lunch, and Mark's father took out a wallet out of his pocket, and he said, they found this on Mark when he was killed, and he carefully removed a folded, refolded, and taped paper, the one on which I'd listed the good things Mark's classmates had said about him. Another one of the classmates there named Charlie smiled sheepishly and said, I keep my list in my desk drawer. Chuck's wife said, Chuck put his in our wedding album. Marilyn said, I have mine too, it's in my diary. Vicki reached into her pocket and brought out her frazzled list. What if, what if when someone who calls North Wake home is discouraged, I mean like really discouraged, and they would think about church at North Wake and they would say, man, I am seriously discouraged. I need to make sure I don't miss that gathering at North Wake, North Wake this Sunday. I sure better not skip out on small group. I'm desperate for encouragement, and I know I'll find it there. I always find it there. If there are two things that we need to mark our community at North Wake, among them surely would be encouragement and love. Pray this for our church. Pray that we would be loving and encouraging to one another. After all, after all, right, this is the year of treasuring church, right? Sam Storms adds this important thought. He says, the result of encouraged and entwined hearts is full assurance and the knowledge of God's mystery, namely Jesus. Implicit in Paul's language is the assumption you can't grow up in God in isolation from other believers. Gaining the assurance of our faith and expanding our knowledge of Jesus are communal endeavors. So when 30% of Southern Baptists seldom or never attend church, their very faith is in jeopardy, right? at least the assurance of it. 
And Paul ends our section this way. He says in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Though he can't be with them, he writes these words to them to safeguard the, the church. And he is with them in spirit, he says, suffering yet rejoicing, teaching them of Christ, struggling for them in prayer, safeguarding this good church from the press of the false teaching of the day. So let's go back to where I, the questions I asked at the beginning. Which of these safeguards do you need most now? And which of these safeguards might Christ be asking you to deploy now in the people you know at North Wake for the safekeeping of our church? Let's pray. And so, Lord, I, I just ask now you'd help us to think our way back through what we've learned about the importance of suffering and sacrificing with joy for our church. God, help us not be selfish followers as though that could even be. Help us to be willing even to suffer for one another. And Lord, may Christ be honored here through the teaching and admonishing that comes from your good word, not just where I stand, though surely there, but also in all of our lives, in all of our friendships, in our small groups, in our coffee conversations. Safeguard us, Lord. And oh Lord, may we be a people who labor in prayer, who struggle and toil in prayer for our church. For our adversary, the devil, is seeking someone here to devour Safeguard our church, Lord, by your appointed means, we pray.